2: I'm Alan Alda and this is clear and vivid conversations about connecting and communicating.
3: I take what someone else created and interpret it to the best of my abilities. I'm always searching for something new. What if I held that note a little bit longer and then pushed off so I, you know, it's like leaping into the pool. So this is what I'm doing and it's endlessly fascinating. I don't get bored singing the same thing.
2: Renee Fleming has sung in opera houses and on concert stages around the world. And even if you've never been to the opera, you might very well have heard her sing on the soundtracks of very popular movies and in recordings that span a range of styles. This year, she appeared for the first time on the Broadway stage in the musical Carousel. Renee has covered a lot of ground, but I think you'll be surprised to hear about the project she's passionately engaged in now. Renee and I talked one afternoon at her apartment in Manhattan, and it's ironic that while I was talking with someone who possesses one of the most beautiful voices in the world, I was suffering from a hoarse throat. Renee acted as though she didn't notice, which shows what a good actress she is. And actually, our conversation started with talking about acting and about one mysterious aspect of it that Renee seems to be blessed with. We saw Carousel the other night, and we we're just amazed at your performance. Thank you. Not just your incredible voice, but this thing that you have really, really amazed me. You have the ability to come out on stage and capture everybody's attention without seeming to want to or try. You, you, we huh. can't take our eyes off you. <laughs> are you are you aware of that? Are you aware of of a, 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 of the effect you have on the audience?
3: No, absolutely not. And I, I, I have to say one, one thing about this experience uh, in comparison with what I typically do, which is either on the operatic st- stage or in the concert hall, is that I it feels more intimate to me. This does. So, yeah, I have much more uh, of a sense of the audience, and so I feel um I, that i'm that the music is kind of flowing through me because we always want to be in somehow in a kind of a flow state that's the ideal but i never think about uh drawing attention to myself
2: yeah you know i can't stand it when i see a performer who insists that i pay attention to the, to the exclusion of the other actors and even the script itself look at me i'm the main attraction <laughs> You are the total opposite of that, and yet we can't take our eyes off you. Huh. I, wonder, I wonder if it has to do with playing big opera houses yes. where you have found a way to fill the house without being extra big to do it, or, or, or do, you, do you make an effort to, to do things bigger in an opera house?
3: I would say that what I had to learn to do, and this was a a kind of a painful experience, but I did a role in the mid '90s that was extremely emotional with Susanna in um, in the opera Susanna, and uh, and I was crying on stage and just feeling completely caught up in the drama. And somebody came back and said, "Gosh, you really have to learn how to act." (laughs) And I thought, "What did they?" I thought, "This is the the best acting I've ever done." And then I realized the light bulb went on because I thought if you don't show it in a big, big house that seats 4,000 people, physicalize it, meaning with your gestures or, you know, really with your body more than your face, because past the 10th row they can't see us, Uh, the audience can't really see facial expressions, then it doesn't read. So uh, in this situation, I have really... Realize between the amplification, because in classical music we're never amplified. Yeah. uh, Between the amplification and the more intimate venue, the stage is quite small. I have really felt like I don't have to do much at all. So it's ironic that it it it, that it's reading better.
2: It you you fill the place. That sensation of filling a place. Sometimes I've been aware of that myself, and it's a it's a mysterious thing. It's almost like a personal connection with everybody in Mm. the room just by being aware that they're there.
3: Yes. Oh, that's interesting. I had a very traumatic experience also in college because an acting teacher uh, said you're going to be great on stage, you have a very big face, which, you know, for a teen, you know, a young adult woman is about the last thing you should ever say. <laughs> big face. Yeah. I, said, oh, I was traumatized. I said, no one will, I'll never get a boyfriend. You know?
2: <laughs> <laughs> but you get an audience.
3: Oh, right, exactly.
2: <laughs> I had an acting guru once say to me when I was about the same age, you don't have to do so much, you have a very expressive face. <laughs> There Which is go. a wonderful way of saying, "Calm down, Just yeah, yeah. don't don't be all over the place, right, right." You mentioned the business of being amplified uh, on Broadway, mm-hmm. where you are now, and not being amplified on the operatic stage. What, did you have to change the way you sing to to accommodate the the microphone?
3: Yeah, I'm trying to, yes, because I don't want to add any distortion to the sound. Because, you know, in, the, in, in classical music, we're, our bodies are the amplifiers. We're really um, using uh, as much, really, strength as we can to project the voice. And and uh, in, uh, in when you're amplified, of course, you don't, you don't have to make a big sound at all. Yeah. You allow the technology to do that for you. So what do you change? So, I, I use um, much less breath pressure, much less uh, sort of a sense. You know, in, in classical music, I'm always thinking about projecting. Uh-huh. You know, it's, it's, uh-huh. we're kind of human ventriloquists. And so uh, here I'm, I'm thinking about really just what, what am I saying? How am I singing it? And, and, and trying to sing, you know, healthily and well, but without power.
2: What's it like doing eight shows a week for you? Because you, <laughs> you don't do that in opera. How many times oh, no. do you perform an opera a week?
3: Um, maximum three and yeah. typically more like two. Uh-huh. So, uh, But it's I always say we're the weightlifters of singers because in opera, we really have to have that downtime in between because it takes so much uh, power. Yeah. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm trying to sing a little bit differently so that I can manage this eight shows a week. I'm loving it. First of all, I'm home for the first time in my adult life. <laughs> I've never been home for more than two months f- No kidding, since you. I was a student.
2: Wow. Yeah. But the thing about eight shows a week that I have always found, just just acting, but singing is even worse. I've been, <laughs> I've been in a couple of musicals. But the the thing is, from the time you wake up in the morning until after the show, I should make this personal, from the time I wake up in the morning <laughs> until after the show, I'm thinking, did I get enough sleep today? When do I eat? How much do I eat? Ah, uh, Yes. And if I feel a tickle in my throat, am I going to have a cold to cope with?
3: Oh, okay. Do you not
2: get colds?
3: Um, I don't get them very much. Uh, you know, I, I'm typically on a plane every three days. And that and that so, exposes you to a lot. Yeah, I'm very careful. You, you won't see me handling doorknobs and railings with yeah. my bare hands. Yeah, I, do, I don't either. I always use a piece of clothing, so... Yeah, if you see a strange lady using her scarf to open the door you'll you, I that's I do me. the same thing
2: <laughs> because I'm so afraid of getting a cold I can remember so many times I got a cold and I thought immediately well maybe this is the end I'll study mime
3: <laughs> Oh gosh we performers right Oh you get crazy
2: I'm- Something that has really surprised me as watching you from afar in the last couple of years is what seems to be an interest in science that I share with you. I mean, we are both outsiders in science, outsiders to science, but we're both caught up in the, I guess for me, it's the awe of what they're finding out about nature that just amazes me. But how we work, and especially the brain.
3: Yes, I. And now
2: you got the same interest, and I've applied it to music.
3: It's true. I and I and we met, of course, at the World Science Foundation, one of the events there. And I'm thrilled that you're involved because it it underlines and supports everything that they're doing. And uh, I happened to meet Francis Collins at an incredible dinner party.
2: Francis Collins, for those who don't know, is the head of the National Institutes of Health, the NIH. What at that dinner party story is this is an example of wonderful communication because it seems to have been a turning point in your life, which is a, a good ear catching moment to talk about. <laughs> yes. And it's a wonderful story to, yes. to, to tell the story of that, that dinner party.
3: Well, it was a dinner party um, that we were invited to. We didn't know who the other guests were going to be. And it turned out it was Justices Scalia, Ginsburg, and uh, Kennedy, right after the week of having decided uh, for same-sex marriage. and. Marriage equality. And I was seated because they're both opera lovers were in the case of Justice Scalia between Ginsburg and Scalia. And um, it was I can't say that people were making a tremendous amount of eye contact that evening. (laughs) It took a while for everybody to relax. You can imagine it was a tense week. But, you know, as a lesson to everyone, they came. And we're there to be together and enjoy the evening. Uh, Francis Collins brought his guitar, which I've come to find out he, he loves to do and does well. And we ended up um, having an impromptu sing-along. And you,
2: What was the sing-along? What were they singing?
3: Well, we were singing whatever I knew and what what he knew. So things like This Land is Your Land and and kind of, you know, country roads and, and very kind of popular songs that would make sense uh, to be performed with a guitar and that he knew. Uh, and everybody sang. We had a wonderful time. It loosened everyone up. It was a, a very magical evening. And at some point in the evening, I turned to Dr. Collins and said, I'm a consultant now for the Kennedy Center. And I have noticed that there is a tremendous amount of press about um, neuroscience and the brain and music. And is this worth exploring how how would you feel about collaborating with the great arts institution because the Kennedy Center is our national um uh, center for the arts and he immediately was interested so we've embarked on an extraordinary journey and I'm I feel so privileged to be part of it
2: and it's called sound health
3: sound health and the first music in the mind was the first iteration, and it took place last June, two days of of exploring um, really so many um, strides that have been made in terms of childhood development for therapies, from for, for many different types of therapies, from PTSD, Alzheimer's, autism, Parkinson's, you name it. And then also uh, the research itself and how it plays out and, and how it explains to us as human beings why music has been so much a part of our history, far, far, far. It far predates uh, modern history, just like cave paintings do.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, one of the efforts in the music and the brain uh, correlation is, uh, as I understand it, to study what happens in the brain when music hits the brain. Yes. Well, so, so are many people going through... Functional MRI machine uh, scans to determine that.
3: Well, I had a. I participated uh, you, myself you one in a two-hour <laughs> experiment. Two, two hours in the tube. Huh? <laughs> You're in the tube, I, I didn't really quite know what I was signing up for. I have to say. Yeah, well, uh, what, was,
2: what did it feel like?
3: Um, you know, I, I'm very task-oriented, so once I knew that this we were going to repeat. Uh, you know, me singing, imagining singing and speaking uh, over and over and over again. I'm, I'm the kind of person who says, "Okay, let's buckle down and do it. And I was fine.
2: What were you singing when you were in the fMRI?
3: I picked, um, Dave Grusin set uh, The Water's Wide and Shenandoah for me. Um, mm. uh, we call them the River Songs. So I picked a little bit of The Water's Wide. So I wanted to do some I, something about folk music. There are these iconic songs, Amazing Grace, um, Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, mio mm-hmm. um, Babino, anything by Puccini pretty much, that people universally love. And um, certainly You'll Never Walk Alone is one of them. Mm.
2: Amazing Grace always has an effect on me yeah What well, the water's white I don't think I, I can, can
3: can you remind me how that goes the water is white I cannot get o'er and neither have my wings to fly it's a beautiful folk song and I think that I think there's something on the internet about this experiment and it's not gonna win a Grammy I'll tell you that <laughs> you hear me with the MR the fMRI machine in the background
1: We're gonna start our first scan. (laughs) Not pretty. It's a horrible
2: experience. Yes. I was, you know, I did the science show, Scientific American Frontiers, for 11 years. And I was constantly taking part in the experiments of the scientists. Mm -hmm. And about a dozen times I was in uh, fMRI machines. And they usually, the procedure is they give you a bulb to squeeze. Did they give you a bulb? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In case you're in trouble, you squeeze the bulb. Yes. And they immediately take you out. Right. They were so concerned that they were sticking a, a sort of a celebrity in the machine, huh? telling me how they liked all the movies I'd made. Oh. They forgot the bulb. Oh, no. <laughs> so I let it. I, they, I let them slide me in, and I'm thinking, I don't have the bulb. What if I need the bulb? Right. And accidentally, I raised my hand two inches, and I realized the tube was two inches from my face. <gasps> and I was really, I got claustrophobic. Oh, And I didn't have the bulbs, so I started waving my legs.
3: Oh! They were in the
2: other room photographing the machinery. Then nobody looked at me. Oh, no! Oh, no! (laughs) It got worse and worse. I never wanted to go into a machine again.
3: Oh, my goodness. But I have.
2: After the break, we talk about a subject that has fascinated me most of my adult life. Improvisation. Renee talks about what research is telling us now about the surprising effect of improv on the brain. When we come back, This is Clear and Vivid. I'm Alan Olga, and I'm talking with Renee Fleming about research on the effect that improvisation has on the brain. There is this thing that they seem to be trying to figure out with brain scans of the kind you went through, which is what is the actual effect on the brain of music? What, what is yes. activated and what does that mean for future work?
3: Well, and there's, there's quite a bit out there now at this point, and one of the things that Charles Lim, who's in San Francisco, talks about is the fact that the most powerful thing you can do is improvisation. So Tell me about that, so because if that, that
2: really interests me a lot, because you know when we teach scientists to communicate better, yes. we start with improvisation exercises.
3: Fabulous. Yeah,
2: which for the, for, not for the purpose of making them funny or making them actors, but for the purpose of getting them used to being connected to the person they're talking to, to have this awareness of the other person. You can't do these exercises without really closely observing the other person. Tell me about Charles Lamb. Well,
3: Charles Lamb is uh, one of the extraordinary uh, researchers, actually, in this field. And he... um, in particular, is interested in jazz, so he's done fMRI studies on on jazz musicians and and even on musicians who've had a traumatic brain injury of some sort. So it's it's fascinating to note that the activity that occurs in the brain is most powerful when people are engaging in improvisation. And um, I would suggest that classical musicians learn how to improv too. If I if I were running a conservatory,
2: <laughs> and what would you hope to be the outcome if they did? What, what would
3: improve? Well, there's no question that the, your skills would improve. I so wish that I could play jazz harmonies, for instance, mm. that I could accompany myself because I love jazz, just for the fun of it. Mm. And, uh, and I think this idea of improvisation feeds into who we are as creative people as well. Because what we do in classical music typically is read music. We have the skill, um, and in many cases, extraordinary skill, to read even the most challenging things immediately. And we're also interpreting that and making Mm -hmm. music out of it. But someone improvising is composing in time, in real time. And that's amazing.
2: What I love about it is that it, it brings about spontaneity.
3: Absolutely. Something
2: is happening for the first time. Even if you phrase something, whether it's acting or singing, if you phrase something a certain way before, it actually can be fresh. And for the first time, if you're trained in improv, because it can spontaneously come out of you. Almost the same way it came out of you at the best time it ever came out of you, but with a little flavor of now about it. Yes, something quite a little
3: different. Yes.
2: How much of that is in your performing? How much do you want it to be the way you rehearsed it and how much do you welcome an, an inspiration in the moment?
3: That's such a good question. So as an interpretive performer, so I take what someone else created and interpret it to the best of my abilities. I'm always searching for something new Mm -hmm. and it's, but it's very subtle. So what if I stretch that word a little bit? What if I emphasize that word? What if I gave that a tiny crescendo or a decrescendo? And so all of these elements in a phrase, in any given phrase, or in the sound or the color of my sound, or what if I held that note a little bit longer and then pushed off? So I, you know, it's like leaping into the pool. This is what I'm doing. And it's endlessly fascinating. I don't Mm. get bored singing the same thing.
2: There are a million ways to do it. I was once talking to a director about being in a play he was going to direct, and we were talking about comedy. And I sort of, Mm. just to make conversation, I said, well, of course, there's a thousand ways for something to be funny. And he said, no, there's only one. And I thought, and I guess that's his way.
3: Yes, <laughs> I, yes.
2: I thought this is not a guy I want to work with.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. No. But you, you, I have never thrived when I'm working, say, with a conductor who's very oppressive. Yeah. I don't I don't do Th- great work. If you
2: don't have the freedom to yeah. to come up with what you were just describing yes. in the interpretation of a piece, then then you're it's not yours, it's not an expression of your in your creativity. No, you don't get to create. There used to be a distinction made. and Maybe I guess many people still make it between the creative arts and the interpretive arts. I think there's so much creativity that has to go into interpreting a piece that it's well, hard to absolutely. make that distinction.
3: Well, after the great, that's why the great performers—that's what they bring to the table. I mean, in our case, you also have an, an instrument that's distinctive. But beyond that, if you're not doing something extraordinary with the music you're you're sharing, then it's it's not going to it's not going to land. One
2: of the things that I was thinking about when I was thinking about talking with you it just suddenly occurred to me, because we talk on this podcast a lot about uh, communication, that. Performing is an ultimate communication. You can think of performing as doing, you know, you perform a task, you do a task, and it's just a doing of it, and you try to do it as well as you can. Right. But there's something about connecting with the audience that can change it where you're giving them something. Absolutely. Didn't you have an experience reading a a book by Beverly Sills that had to do with Yes. For instance, first of all, you I, I was surprised to hear that you had at some point some performance anxiety.
3: Oh, a terror terrible stage fright. Uh, you know, I'm not by nature a performer. I don't have the gregarious sort of desire to be in front of people. Um I was I'm more like I like the pr- the practice room. That was my favorite uh. spot so i had to learn how to perform and uh, and a couple of on a couple of instances um I, you know and one the second time i had stage fright it took me almost a year to get out of it and i okay. fortunately i had year. good people you, you, you yeah, were suffering
2: but, performances yeah, for a year, or terrible. you just didn't perform
3: no uh, you you can't stop you shouldn't stop you know, yeah. we know we can think of, you and I could think of several examples of people who made the mistake of stopping, and then sometimes yeah. they never go back. Sometimes they go back, famous people, 20 years later.
2: Yeah, I you know, I had it once. I was doing a play in London, oh. and I was in the middle of a long monologue, and I heard this voice inside my head say, Well, you got that line right. What makes you think you'll get the next one right?
3: <gasps> oh,
2: And I immediately felt sweat dripping down my body it was oh. instantaneous and i uh, in a fraction of a second later i came up with the next line yeah and the voice said okay you got that line what makes you think you'll get the next one?" Oh no! and it went on like that for yeah. a minute or so oh my it's goodness. the worst feeling yeah it's terrible so what did you what did you learn from beverly sills about that
3: Um, she, uh, she, she didn't tell me what not to do and she was talking about public speaking and she was talking Mm. about feeling that she was a benevolent force when speaking with the audience and that in a sense that she was sharing something, Mm. you know, so, so basically in my mind, it was, it was changing the the flow of energy from the audience judging me, mm-hmm. and therefore the flow coming at me in a negative way. Uh, I would imagine them thinking all kinds of horrible things and ratings and you know, name yeah, it. Yeah, judging exactly, and and thinking about it, and just turning it around as that the flow of energy was coming from me to them in in a beautiful light, in something that was that was that was wonderful to be able to share. And we're having, of course, a community experience, and, uh, and this really helped me. It was, a, it was about how I thought about performing.
2: That, that, to me, is an essential element of communication, is ah. the awareness that they're there, but they're not there to judge you.
3: Yes. They're
2: there t- for you to share something of value with them and maybe get something back in exchange from them, if it's that kind of an exchange.
3: Well, then I, uh, I started talking to the audience in performance. Oh, you talk to the in audience performance. When, you're,
2: when you're performing music.
3: Exactly. Yeah. So I, I spend for 15 years now most of my time touring in concert. Yeah. And I discovered, um, especially in regional uh, concerts, that I'm a closet comedian. <laughs> and nothing gives me more pleasure than making people laugh
2: isn't that great isn't that so, a wonderful feeling
3: and i've developed a sort of repertoire of one liners that accompany a very ser- a serious work and i have found that it doesn't take away from the performance in fact it i think it helps the audience uh enjoy more For one
2: thing, it's a human performance. It's a human action that you're performing for them, and they see you as a person, and that person who just made them laugh now can bring them to an exalted feeling with singing. Exactly, that's what we hope. Exactly, it's wonderful.
3: Well, and I enjoy it very much, and and I also now can really sense the audience, and if they're with me, if they're enjoying it, and it, it's a much more of a shared performance than what we used to do, which was to stand there in the temple of art and yeah. say, "You you people are so lucky." I mean, the word <laughs> diva comes from goddess, and <laughs> right. you know, to be in my presence, you are so fortunate. So we, we, that doesn't work very well anymore. No.
2: No, and I and I recognize what you're saying because the other night I was about to go on and give a talk, uh-huh. and I'd given the talk a number of times, but still I wondered, will I forget that section? Will I will I will I be spontaneous? Will it will it go- be good? And all of a sudden, almost by chance, I just pictured going out and meeting the people, seeing them, and oh. I started to smile. huh. And I've noticed that until I reach that moment where I smile about the anticipation of meeting the people I'm going to be with, huh. it's not, I'm not really ready yet. But when I have that, it's like just what you were saying. It's a community experience.
3: Mm -hmm. That is a gift. What a gift you just shared with all of us. First of all, I'm just happy to know that you sometimes have those doubts.
2: Sure, sure. I feel we all must. And and it's probably no good to deny it. Yes. It's just to recognize it and think of what can I do about this? And what what you were talking about is exactly what you can do about it. You can recognize That they're there, and they came to have a good time. Right, right. They didn't come to... Absolutely, you
3: no, no. If they, no, absolutely. And you know, this idea of what a performance means is changing to me also because, you know, when Vivek Murthy last year talked about the epidemic of isolation and loneliness and and how if serious it's becoming. He was a former uh,
2: surgeon, surgeon yes, general,
3: exactly, and and, and also, and, and
2: he said this amazing thing about loneliness that yes. it, it causes more death or as much death as smoking does. Isn't is that, that amazing? Am I, that, that's unbelievable.
3: It is. And so one of the things, you know, and I think technology to some degree is also isolating us. And one of the ways that we can come together is, is by going out into the community and, sh- and, and participating in a performance or a talk. Or, uh, and, and it's our job, I think, in the performing arts to make that more social.
2: Yeah. And you do that when you talk to them. Is, is, is this an understanding that's growing among musicians uh, I remember when, you know, fifty years ago, seeing concerts where there was what you described—that church-like silence before mm-hmm. the performance—and and, and I—I've seen over the years a few people begin to talk.
3: Well, I I think it's more common. For instance, in theater, when we produced uh, um, Ann Patchett's Bel Canto at yeah. the opera, the the new new composition for Lyric Opera of Chicago, we had talkbacks after every performance, and seven hundred people stayed almost every mm. performance to talk about the opera. So. It's it is powerful when it's offered. I do think that people are interested, and as Opera America said, you know, you want to have um, ideally in a perfect setting, you want to have wine, you want to have a short performance, and then allow people to sit with people they care about. <laughs> so yes, that's the future. I so hope.
2: you just completed work on the movie of Bel Canto, written by our mutual friend Dan Patches. Yes, yes. And so you you're the the singing voice right. of Julianne Moore. Yes, exactly. Did you, did you work with her at all to to help her? Find what it's like well, to she's, look like you're singing?
3: She's a consummate professional. So when I was recording the music, she actually sat five feet from me uh. to try and really absorb what happens to my body and what I do with my face, et cetera, when I'm singing. Because, you know, if, if if people don't really pay attention, they assume that you're just opening your mouth really wide. And when I see a photograph like that, I always say, you know, that I only do that in the dentist office. I don't <laughs> do that when I'm singing. So... Um, So she was incredible and asked me a lot of questions and, and in fact, worked with my vocal coach, uh, Gerald Moore, a little bit. And uh, it's a beautiful film. So I hope it will come out sometime this year. This is my film year between that and The Shape of Water and three billboards outside Emmy, Missouri. I, I just, you can't pursue these things. They come to you in a wonderful way, as Carousel did, actually.
2: Renee does do something extraordinary with the music. And yet, like me and many other performers, she's had to deal at times with performance anxiety. It's surprising in a way because music has such an extraordinary capacity
3: to heal. I'll just give two examples that are interesting. So if a stroke victim loses the ability to speak... Um, through plasticity, which is a new extraordinary piece of information about the brain, which is that it can change and grow and um, re-utilize all what it exists of for new tasks. And using singing, actually, this is one of my favorite things, using singing can actually um, uh, help someone regain speech Mm -hmm. within one one session with a music therapist.
2: This was true for my father when he was
3: aphasic,
2: couldn't speak, after a stroke, he had music therapy and he could, where things he couldn't say without music, he could say when he sang.
3: Huh. Well, what a gift to be able to communicate again! Yeah. Uh, extraordinary, and you know, with so many therapy, there are just and with childhood development. The other thing I, I, one of the other things I really love is that um, actually studying an instrument. They haven't done studies on just singing, but but studying and playing an instrument absolutely improves um, school uh, behavior and improves certainly how people do in school because their auditory uh, skills are improved.
2: Mm. I wonder if the the discipline you have to go through to learn music, to learn to read, to make the connection between the keys on the piano and the fly specks on the paper. Definitely. It's it's a challenge. train you to pay more attention.
3: Definitely. That's another byproduct is the focus, is the ability to pay attention to something for a long period of time and the self-discipline. That mm-hmm. comes with practice. One of the things that brought me to this subject, too, was that I, along with stage fright, had a lot of somatic pain throughout my career that absolutely I know re- was related to performance anxiety. Uh, so, you know, you really. Or you
2: would get like a pain in your back or oh, something.
3: Oh, just, you know, neck tension, back tension, you name yeah. it. And it, it's a form of tension. So um, so over the years, you, you just have to really work with your mind in order to force your body to do what yeah. it needs to do. Um, and it's it that creates a certain kind of sensitivity, and you definitely the same for you as an actor.
2: Yeah, very much so. A lot of it is a, a relaxation. As much I, I ran into uh, the acting guru from the Actors Studio once in mm-hmm. an airport, and we just chatted, and he said, "You know what the actors in the movies in the '40s had." that was helpful to them was the, they knew how to make themselves relax on camera because most of them were not experienced or trained actors. Huh. And they had to be comfortable. That's why you constantly saw them lighting a cigarette or sitting on the ed- edge of a desk. Oh. Anything to help them relax.
3: Oh, how interesting. And in that
2: relaxation, which you can get other ways if you if you learn, right. comes spontaneity, creativity. The ability to connect with the other person yes. because you're not worried about yourself. You're not thinking, "How am I doing? Am I too fat?" You oh, know.
3: the you anxiety know. is it, is really hard. But uh, there
2: you came on stage in Carousel the other night effortlessly. It was a it was a beautiful thing. I'm to see. loving
3: this. I have no anxiety doing this. I, I don't know if it's because I'm away from my other world, yeah. and so I feel like I'm a visitor, and so nobody's really paying attention. I, you know, I may have some some warped idea about this, but also June is busting out all over. as pure joy. Oh
1: yeah, uh, I love and
3: that. I feel it, and hopefully the audience feels it, and I we love we come off stage smiling.
2: Isn't that great? Yes. When that smile happens, you know everything's okay. That's right. Well, I've been smiling during our whole conversation. Oh, good. Thank you so much. Thank it's been a you. Great, great time to talk with you. It's
3: a real pleasure.
2: So, there's one more thing. If you don't mind, if you're game for it, we've been okay. asking everybody to do seven quick answers to seven quick questions. Okay, I'll try. And the, I'm
3: terrible at this, but I'll try.
2: Okay, so first question What do you wish you really understood?
3: God, there's so much. Where do I begin? Really understood human nature.
2: Oh, good. What do you wish other people understood about you?
3: Well-intentioned.
2: That you are well-intentioned. Yes. Yeah. What's the strangest question anyone ever asked you?
3: I get, do you know, are you Katie Couric a lot? <laughs> you, you get what? I get, are you Katie Couric? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's yeah, not strange. It's complimentary. I'm, yeah,
2: I'm, I'm dying to know yeah. what you answer. Yes. You say yes?
3: Oh, yes, yes. I, I nod politely.
2: <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? I interrupt. And then that works? Yeah. Oh, good. Yes. Is there anyone that you just can't feel empathy for?
3: Oh, dear. That's really loaded right now. That's so loaded right now.
2: Gotcha. Yeah. Right, that's the That's the answer. Yeah. Now, how, how do you like to deliver bad news? In person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon?
3: <laughs> Always in person.
2: Always. You prefer yeah. that. Even
3: if it's hard, you have to.
2: And the last question, what, if anything, would make you end a friendship?
3: I have the most difficult time with dishonesty, with lying.
2: Mm, Great. Well, I'll be be careful. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Renee.
3: Thank you.
2: Renee was terrific to welcome us into her home for this episode. Renee can be seen on Broadway right now in her starring role in Carousel. Tickets are available online or at the box office. You can find all of Renee's projects, past albums, and current work on her website at reneefleming.com. Renee mentioned the book Bel Canto during our conversation. I interviewed the book's celebrated author and New York Times bestseller, Ann Patchett. That was a great conversation, and I encourage you to check that out when the podcast becomes available. This episode of Clear and Vivid was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. And our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to my podcast for free at Apple Podcasts. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, psychologist Paul Bloom tells me what happens when you take a stand against something as apple pie as empathy.
1: When you have a book titled Against Empathy, you get some cranky people. And and
3: what I find ironic is I get these emails saying, you know, you, you're a monster.
2: You don't appreciate empathy as a source of goodness. I ought to come to your house and beat you up. Paul Bloom and I looking for agreement, ever so politely, on the subject of empathy. I'm for it, he's against it. Next time on Clear and Vivid. To listen to these conversations, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts.